Well, good morning, Blue Water. Thanks for being here this morning. I've been debating about whether I tell you this story or not. This has nothing to do with the sermon. Um, I got a, a call yesterday morning before I, before I was awake. It was a call from the alarm company at uh, Divine, at the Divine Street campus. And they said, there's been a, a door alarm that's been tripped. Uh, the police have been dispatched. Do you want, uh, do you want me to, to see if we can call them back? And I said, well, I, I was half asleep. So no, no, just so anyway, I got up. I didn't even brush my teeth. I drove down and um, walked in. And it was, it was pretty obvious that someone had been in the building. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere uh, without uh, friendly neighborhood policemen. So I, I went back and I waited until the, the policeman showed up and super nice guy. I was really, really impressed. And we, we walked through the building together and uh, we were just sort of chatting. It was kind of lighthearted. And um, we went to the, the south door and I gave the south door a little push and it, it hadn't latched. It was open. And um, as soon as the police officer saw that, he said, this changes things. And he, he grabbed his radio and called for backup. And so we're walking through the building a little, a little more carefully now. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to, to walk downstairs while you're walking upstairs so that the guy doesn't just circle around on us? And he said, no, no, you stay with me. Now, in hindsight, I recognize that he was thinking, I just don't want to get this civilian hurt. But in the moment, you better believe, I thought, he needs me as backup. So um, uh, I, I was his backup until his real backup came. We, no one was in. It was, it was fine. Everything was great. Um, we, we made some changes to make sure it doesn't happen again. And um, anyway, it was, it was an exciting morning. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Colossians. If you have your Bible, we'd love for you to open, us, open up with us to Colossians. Um, one of the most famous people in the world is Michael Jordan. If I was to quiz every, every single person in this room, I bet that there's not a single person here who's never heard of Michael Jordan. Um, he is uh, the, the, the best basketball player to ever live, and uh, even though he retired from playing 20 years ago this year, which is hard for me to believe, um, he is still one of the, the most famous names on the planet. But have you ever thought about what it would be like to be someone else named Michael Jordan? Have you ever thought of that? There are about 3,000 people, I'm told, in the United States that, that have that, that suffer from that exact same issue. Uh, 3,000 Michael Jordans in the world, and in, in, in the United States, rather, and in fact, there is even a very famous A-list actor named Michael Jordan, but the basketball player Michael Jordan is so famous that the actor Michael Jordan has to put his initial in there. He goes by Michael B. Jordan just to uh, uh, differentiate himself from the basketball player. Now here's the deal. Those other Michael Jordans, like poor middle-aged uh, dad Michael Jordan, white guy, they're not lying. They're not imposters. They are Michael Jordan, but they're not the Michael Jordan. There's actually only one of the Michael Jordans. Now, in the city of Colossae, there were people who were starting to teach the Colossian Christians about Jesus. But the Jesus who they were teaching about was not the Jesus, was not the authentic Jesus. They were teaching about a different Jesus. We're actually going to look at that um, today. And it actually begs the question, like, are there more than one Jesuses? 
Well, the Apostle Paul actually thought so. We'll put this passage on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, he continues, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, he's kind of taking these guys to task. Like, if someone brings a different Jesus, an, uh, an unauthentic Jesus, you put up with it. And the Colossian church was in danger of falling into the same error. Well, if you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1 is where we are found this morning. Uh, we're starting in verse 15. We're going to walk down through these verses till verse 20. Now, I have said this before. I, I feel like I say it about every third week, that this is my favorite passage in the Bible. Well, guess what? I think this might be my favorite passage in the Bible. I feel like it wasn't too long that I said that about a different passage, but I love this passage. It is, it is one of, I, th I think it's my favorite. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Talking about Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Man, I love that passage. It's so powerful, so moving. Some people believe that Paul actually composed that himself. Other scholars believe that that was actually a song that was sung in the early church, a song about Jesus. As a matter of fact, um, scholars, the, the, the scholarly term for this section is the Christ hymn, H-Y-M-N, the Christ hymn. And, and whether it was composed as like the Apostle Paul for this, for this letter to the Colossians or whether it was a song that they sung in the early church, it, it should result in worship for the people of God, right? Like hearing that, hearing how majestic and amazing Jesus is, that should result in worship to us. And the argument that we're going to make here, part of the argument that we're going to make is that that should result in us declaring the fame in the name of Jesus both in the nations and in Sarnia. And so the question we're going to be asking is, if this is the authentic Jesus, and if we worship this authentic Jesus, is that spurring us? to telling other people about him? It should, it has to, in fact. Well, let's walk down through this passage, this amazing passage, one verse at a time. Let's look back at verse 15, where it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There are some scholars who believe, and I'm not sure entirely what I think about this, I've been processing through this for a number of years, actually, but there are some scholars who believe that the only one of the Godhead that anyone will ever see is Jesus. And you think about the, the angels that are created to be in the presence of God. What are those angels like? Well, they're these immense, powerful beings and they have six wings. With two wings, they're flying. And with two wings, they're covering their faces because there's something so holy and perfect and amazing about God that even to look at him is to come undone. 
So these angels that are made to be in his presence have to cover their faces. And then with their other two wings, they cover their feet, which is symbolic of God not being able to see their imperfection. Now, whether or not Jesus is the only God we will ever see, even if he is the only God we will ever see, the only one of the Godhead we will ever see, that's okay because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus participates in what it is to be God. This is a really big deal. This might sound like, why are you making such a big deal about this? The implications about this are staggering. Jesus participates in the nature of God. Now, cults and other types of people will, will come in and they'll say, well, wait a second, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Let's talk about that for a second. I don't even like that translation, the firstborn of creation. Technically, it might be right, but the way that it reads in English, it makes it sound like Jesus is part of creation, that out of all creation, he was the firstborn of it. But that's not what Paul's communicating. What he's, I think a better rendering would be, he's the firstborn over creation. Um, and even that word firstborn, it can be kind of problematic for us. Because when we hear the word firstborn, we think about the, the, the one who was born first. So we think chronologically with that. So with my own children, um, if you include my, my three natural children and my two in-law daughter-in-laws, um, which one was my firstborn? Well, my firstborn was the, the, was, is my son Bryce, who actually came out of the womb first. Here's the problem. In the way that in that culture they used the word firstborn, it didn't actually completely imply a chronology. Let me explain. In that culture, the oldest son carried a disproportionate amount of the family's wealth and position and influence and uh, kind of authority, right? So, so um, the family name, as it were, was passed down through the oldest son. And that was exemplified by the fact that the oldest son got double the inheritance that every other kid got. They were like, if you're gonna carry the name of, and the, the, the reputation of this family, you're getting double what everyone else gets. And over time, that term firstborn came to not just represent the one who like chron chronologically came out of the womb first, it came to represent the person who was preeminent or the person who was the, the most significant, okay? So for example, there's a bunch of times in the Old Testament where, I mean, one of the great examples is King David. King David wasn't the firstborn. He's, he's called the firstborn, but he wasn't the firstborn in his family. Does anybody remember where, G, where David was born in his birth order? Last. Yeah. So even though he was last born, he's called firstborn. Why? Because he's the most significant. He's the most preeminent. And that is what Paul is trying to tell us. He's not saying that Jesus is the first created being out of creation. No. What he's saying is that, this is what he's saying. He's saying that you can divide the world, you can, not the world, you can divide everything that is, visible and invisible, into two categories, creator and creation. And what he's saying is that Jesus goes in the category of creator. He doesn't go in the category of creation. 
And as a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter one, we're gonna throw this up on the screen for you. Hebrews chapter one confirms kind of what we're saying here. Let me read it for you, it'll be on the screen. The writer of Hebrews says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. <clears throat> Pardon me. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He participates in what it is to be, to be God, in the nature of God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We're gonna talk about that in a couple minutes. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is, brings us to our first big idea today. Our first big idea is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And he's God categorically. Can you say Jesus is God? Say that with me. Jesus is God. He is God. He's God categorically. <clears throat> in the category of creator or creation, he is in the category of creator. He is God. Okay, let's look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And this is our second big idea. The second big idea that we see this morning is that Jesus is the creator. So number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus is the creator. He's the creator of all. <clears throat> Everything that is, is part of his creative act. And Paul makes a point to include that, there, uh, that spiritual beings that angels and demons are also part of his created act, creative act. That's why when he, when he talks about um, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, those are all different levels of angels that they believed in in that time, okay? So Paul's making great pains to say that Jesus is over, he's superior to because he created all the angels and demons. Now, this is tricky for us to understand because we are s such materialist people. Now, when I say that, I don't mean materialistic, although probably that too, but we are materialists. What I mean is, if we get sick, well, okay, we think, <clears throat> excuse me, we think that everything that happens has to have a physical, material cause. So if you get sick, the reason you are sick is because there are um, little um, pathogens or whatever that have got into your body and that your body needs to fight, fight off. If you have a mental health struggle, that's because there's a chemical imbalance in your brain that we need to, to figure out and get balanced out. And maybe, maybe. But whereas the ancients thought that everything had a spiritual cause, and there was nothing physical, you're sick, it's because you've got a demon, of course. You're suffering from depression, it's because you've got a demon. We have gone to the far other extreme and said, you're sick, it's because of something, it's because of a microbe. You're struggling with mental health, it's because of a chemical imbalance. I think the truth is that it might be one or the other of those things. I have been learning recently about something called 
um, sleep paralysis. Now, I've never suffered from sleep paralysis, although as I've been learning about this, I'm, I'm stunned by how many people I know that suffer from sleep paralysis. And, and just if you've never experienced this, just a quick uh, explanation of what it is. It's what happens when someone wakes up in the middle of the night and they're somewhere between waking and sleeping, but as the name indicates, um, even though they're awake and their mind is working, their body is, is paralyzed, can't move. And it's kind of scary because there uh, is a, the sense of a very real, very malevolent um, uh, something that is right above, right above you, right above your face, and even pressing down on you to the point where it gets even hard to breathe. The first time I w uh, ever heard of this was a friend of mine, this is years and years ago, a friend of mine uh, who was a missionary in Papua New Guinea who talked about this, how his children would experience this. It's incredibly common, and even like non-Christian atheists, scientists who study this have said that if someone experiences um, sleep paralysis, if they're able to cry out to Jesus out loud, it instantly goes away. Now, the, the atheist scientist is trying to find a, a material cause, like it's, it's your brain trying to figure out something in, you know, in sleep and you're not quite asleep, you're not quite awake, whatever. But why in the world would the name of Jesus cause something like this to end immediately? What we're gonna see in a couple minutes is because Jesus has put the, spiritual, the, the wicked spiritual forces to open shame. That's why. I've also had friends who struggled with panic attacks and, and sometimes when they're in the middle of a panic attack, if they cried out to Jesus, the panic attack would go away immediately. Now, am I saying that every panic attack is the result of, of a demon? No, I'm not saying that. But I think maybe some are. Why else would crying out the name of Jesus have any impact on this? Because Jesus is categorically the creator of all. He is over all. There are real, listen, this is a very, very much part of the Christian worldview. I know I sound crazy, <laughs> but there are real malevolent spiritual forces in the world who want our destruction, and Christ is Lord over them. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He is preeminent over everything including the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, so point number one, Jesus is what? He's God, categorically. Number two, Jesus is the what? He's the creator, he's the creator of all. Let's look at number three in verse 17. What we're gonna see is that he is the sustainer of everything. Look at verse 17. It says, uh, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In our church, we have some people who are really good at science. We have some really good physicists in this room. We do, in this room right now. You know who's not one of those people? This guy. Um, however, I did a little bit of reading about atomic theory for you. You're welcome. There's something that has always confused me, even back to the time when I was in high school. 
Uh, one of the things that they explained in probably basic chemistry is that um, atoms make up everything, make up everything that's material, right? And what's an atom? Well, you have a, a very dense nucleus, and then you have electrons that are zipping around the outside. And um, like charged particles, what do they do? Do you remember? Like charged particles repel, and, and uh, uh, opposite charged particles, what do they do? Oh, good. Some of you remember grade 10 chemistry. Very good. Awesome. Similar, similarly charged particles repel. This is what magnets are. Like charged particles attract. Okay. This is why you have this proton or the, the nucleus and we have the electron zipping around the outside and doesn't fly off into space because it's got a thing there. But I never could understand, well, if the nucleus is made up of positively charged particles called protons, how do you get more than one of them together? And the explanation was, well, you have neutral charged particles called neutrons that bind these positively charged particles together. And like, I took their word for it, like, okay, I guess, but that doesn't make a lot of sense. How does this work? Well, let me quote to you. We'll throw this up on the screen. Let me quote to you from the source of all truth and knowledge in the world, <laughs> Wikipedia. It says, the nucleus of an atom consists of tightly bound protons and neutrons. The electromagnetic force, which causes light charges to repel, prevents protons from binding together without neutrons. It would blow such a nucleus apart. And again, okay, but like you said that, you already told us that light charges should blow apart, but how does a neutral charge bind them together? It says, when neutrons and protons are in very close, they are held together by the nuclear strong force. Hmm. Well, there's a physicist at the Bell Laboratory named Carl Darrow, and here's what he said. We'll throw this up for you as well. He said, you grasp what this implies. It implies that all the mass of the nuclei have no right to be alive at all. In other words, like, you're right. They shouldn't be able to bind together. Indeed, they should never have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they all are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself. Now, I don't think Carl Darrow is a Christian, but I'll tell you what I think. I think the thing that holds every one of those nucleus particles together is the word and power of Jesus, who upholds everything and binds everything together by the word of his strength. And it's interesting because in 2 Peter chapter, I wrote it down, 2 Peter chapter three, Peter writes and he says that the earth will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Now I might be wrong, but I think that at the end of time what's gonna happen, this is just Tim's theory, okay? I think that at the end of time, what's gonna happen is Jesus is gonna take his sustaining hand off of every atom in the universe, and every atom simultaneously is going to experience a nuclear, re nuclear reaction <laughs> or explosion as all that energy is released, and then Jesus will create a new heavens and new earth. Now, could I be wrong on all that? I may very well be, but that's what I think is gonna happen. Now, when Paul is talking about this, he's not talking about atom theory, okay? He's not talking about these particles. 
What he is saying is that in Jesus, everything holds together. Because of Jesus, everything makes sense. And without Jesus, nothing makes sense. That's what Paul's saying. And if it's true that everything makes sense in, like, in view of Jesus, through the filter of Jesus, if he is required to, 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 uh, for everything to make sense, don't you think you can trust him with your life as well? This is why we're always saying, trust the Lord. If he can hold the universe together, he can hold you together too. Okay. So Jesus is God categorically. He's the creator of all. He's the sustainer of everything. Let's look at verse 18 and see that he is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. It says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's look at that last sentence first. Note that Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Now, this is clearly indicating what we talked about earlier about the word firstborn because um, Jesus wasn't the first one to be raised from the dead because he raised people from the dead. So how can he be the firstborn from among the dead? Well, he's not the, the, the chronologically first one, but he is the most important one. That's why he can say that he's the firstborn from among the dead. But notice that Paul also says that Jesus is the head of the body that is the church. Um, I, I will admit that I am kind of awkward at times, and one of the awkward things that I recognize that I do is that sometimes people will talk about uh, Blue Water, and they will talk to me about Blue Water, but they'll say, um, they'll talk about it in terms of your church, right? So they'll say like, hey, how, how are things going at your church? Or I hear things are going really well at your church. And I've tried to stop myself from doing this, but my natural response is to say, do you mean Jesus' church? <laughs> because, listen, I understand what they mean. They mean the church which I pastor, so I get it. I'm not, I'm not I, I understand what they're tr trying to get at. Um, but this isn't my church. And you may attend here, but this isn't your church either, fundamentally. This is the church we attend. This is the church of which we are a part. But this is Jesus' church. And if we had an org chart, we don't. <laughs> but if we did, it wouldn't be Pastor Tim at the top or Pastor Scott or whoever. It wouldn't be the elders at the top. Jesus is at the top of the org chart, okay? This is Jesus' church. Now, um, there are a lot of churches walking around out here who are um, zombie churches. And I call them zombie churches because they've lost their head. And anything without a head is dead. There's a lot of churches who have, have lost Jesus. And they're running along on inertia, but they're zombie churches. And really, they really do just need to die because anything without a head is dead. Um, anything with more than one head is a monster. And there are a lot of churches that have tried to make Jesus as their head and Jesus and social justice or Jesus and political action or Jesus and whatever. And we need to be very careful that, listen, we have one head. Anything without a head, any church without a head is dead and any church with more than one head is a monstrosity. We gotta keep moving. 
Um, we'll throw this quote up for you as well uh, from Abraham Kuyper. We've said this a number of times, we've said this a lot, but I love this quote, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus says, it's all mine. Jesus is God, categorically. He's the creator of all. He's the sustainer of everything. He's the head of the church. And the last thing we're going to look at, uh, we're going to see in verses 19 and 20 that he is the reconciler of all, all things. Look at verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of, that's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Since Jesus is in fullness God, he is able to bring reconciliation to everything that is. And we're going to talk about three things in particular. He's able to reconcile us to God. There is a chasm between us and God that's created by our sin, and we can't get across it. Nothing we can do can reconcile us to God except the blood of his cross. So in Christ and through Christ, we can be brought together with God. We can be made right with God only through Jesus. So he's reconciling us to God. Number two, he's reconciling us to creation. I am not as much of an outdoorsman as I wish I was. But one of the things I have learned from, from being in the outdoors is that nature is brutal. There's a saying that nature is red in tooth and claw. Um, nature is not a Disney movie. Um, there will be a day because Jesus is reconciling all things. There will be a day when a lion is not going to claw and, and devour alive a lamb, which is how it normally goes. There's going to be a day when that lion and that lamb are going to snuggle. There's going to be a day when a, a, a toddler is going to be walking along and say, oh, what is that? And is going to reach into a viper's nest with poisonous asps or whatever poisonous snake and pull out this great big poisonous snake and play with it and not worry about being bitten. There's going to be a day when all of this happens because Jesus is reconciling us to God, he's also reconciling us to creation and Jesus also reconciles us to each other. Now, I am constantly amazed at how narrow our current view of racism is. Um, our current view of racism is that, that all animus in the world, is be, all animus between people is because of the, difference, uh, the different melanin count in our skin. And I have to be honest, I think that that is um, not just untrue, it's also silly. As a species, we have not needed any excuse like the different melanin count in our skin to have animus towards each other. We are perfectly happy to have animus towards people with the exact same color of skin as we do. It's the white slave owners in the antebellum south that get all the hate, and deservedly so, 
But did you know that Africans had an order of magnitude more slaves, more white slaves, than were ever African people enslaved in the United States? Did you know that? Why we boil all this down to um, different skin tones as the, the source of all animus is so confusing to me because it's in Christ and only in Christ that we are reconciled to each other. I don't need the excuse of someone's skin tone in order to hate that person or have animus towards them. In Christ, we are all reconciled to each other and only in Christ. As near as I can tell, the solution of um, people who, who think a lot about racism today, the only solution that they can offer is to replace one type of racism with another type of racism, which is equally as silly as far as I'm concerned. In Christ, male and female, Jew and Gentile, or any other race, even slaves and free people are reconciled together because of what Christ did on the cross. And this is why it was Christians and only Christians that ended the slave trade in this world because of this deep-seated belief that Jesus is reconciling us to each other that we are one in Christ, that we all have dignity and value and worth because we're made in the image and likeness of God. What are we trying to say? What we're trying to say this morning is that it is all about Jesus. There's only one Jesus. There's only one authentic Jesus. He is God categorically. He's the creator of all. He's the sustainer of everything. He's the head of the church and he is the reconciler of all things. It's all about Jesus. And since it's all about Jesus, shouldn't he have first place in our lives as well? Do you love the authentic Jesus? Do you worship the authentic Jesus? Do you serve the authentic Jesus? Do you tell others about the authentic Jesus? Is the authentic Jesus on the throne of your life such that everything else comes into focus and comes into perspective in light of him? If you've never made that connection before, we'd love to pray with you this morning. If you're here this morning and, and uh, something from the sermon, maybe what we're talking about right now, maybe something else that we've talked about, you're, you're saying like, hey man, I just need to talk to somebody, pray with someone about this. We'd love to pray with you this morning. Maybe you've been going through something this week that um, has nothing to do with anything we've talked about, but you just need someone to pray with. We'd love to pray with you this morning. You have friends that will be at the front here who would love to pray with you and pray God's blessing on you and over you this morning. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your great love for us. We, we thank you that, that it's all about Jesus. We thank you that he is the supreme one, that he is preeminent over all. We pray that this week you would help us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. It's to him only that we give all glory, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks, friends. You're loved.